I know that John 3.16 is the most famous verse in the Bible, but Luke chapter 2 has to be a close second to that. Every year it gets rehearsed around the Western world in nativity plays and, of course, Charles Schultz's famous Peanuts episode, which we're all obliged to watch each year, and, of course, in places like this by people like me. It's quite a story. A virgin teenage pregnancy, silent partner Joe, the Roman governor, Caesar, donkey, an animal feeding trough, shepherds, astrologers from different lands, distant lands, and angels. Sounds like it has the makings of a blockbuster. Especially the angel part, I think. We love angels at Christmas time. Well, year-round, probably, but they make a strong appearance at Christmas, don't they? Now, some of the angels that we see around Christmas time are like uh, Reuben's artistic portrayal of them. They are slightly older than a toddler. They are excessively chubby, um, maybe even completely gluttonous. Um, other angels are slender hermaphrodites with wings and appendages that look like they break with a good handshake. You know, you can trace this down through history, artistic expressions. In any case, we apparently think of angels as beings we'd like to have gently floating above our baby's crib, helping us out of a jam when we need them to. The typical story we hear about angels is they picked us up unexpectedly as we were crossing the street and saved us from a speeding car. Or they caught us in midair just before we fell into a well or a bear trap or whatever. As I was thinking about our perception of angels, I, I couldn't help but remember that classic 1993 lyrical masterpiece that has so warmed its way into our hearts from the renowned composers and performers, Alabama. Of course, I'm referring to their powerful musical sonnet, Angels Among Us. You remember this, don't you? I'll refresh your memory. I was walking home from school on a cold winter day, took a shortcut through the woods, and I lost my way. It was getting late, and I was scared and alone, but then a kind old man took my hand and led me home. My mama couldn't see him, oh, but he was standing there, and I knew in my heart he was the answer to my prayers. Oh, I believe there are angels among us. <laughs> you remember it now? Is it coming back? No? You don't remember this? <laughs> Is that why everybody's giving me a blank stare? <laughs> Surely there's one person who remembers it. Sent down to us from somewhere up above, they come to you and me in our darkest hours to show us how to live, to teach us how to give, to guide us with the life, light of love. There you go. There are your angels. Contrast all of that with the angelic counters of Luke 1 and 2. In our Gospel reading, just one angel appears to a number of shepherds on third shift, and they were filled with great fear. The King James, do you remember what it says? And they were 
sore afraid. This is classic biblical understatement. Okay? It's less about being startled because someone unexpectedly popped around the corner, which is a little bit of the impression that you get, and more like so afraid you find yourself paralyzed. Has that ever happened to you? You, know, you actually can't move or speak. Or maybe you lose all bodily functions. It's that intense. It's that kind of sore afraid. Our, our artwork, rather, should probably feature angels with very stern faces. Weapons of war, we know they had those. Imagine them as creatures that would strike terror in opposing forces just simply by looking at them. Those are the sorts of angels that appear in the Bible. And in virtually every one of those angelic encounters in the Bible, this one, like this one with the shepherds, they all include a do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. <laughs> it's like telling a hysterical child to calm down. Oh, okay, sure. In the Bible, angels show up and people freak out. And then you find out that the world is about to change in a very big way. Mary, you're going to have a baby. Hooray, Jason, Joseph and I would love to have children. Hang on. God's going to be the father. And, get this, God's also going to be the son. It's all a bit complicated. And, Mary, your son's going to save the world. That's good. And one more thing, none of it is going to be pretty, and it's all going to break your heart. Can you imagine receiving that one? Same sort of unsettling message to Joseph, and then the message to Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, resulted in him becoming a mute because he dared to reveal his skepticism about the message. I mean, we are not dealing with strangers who help old ladies across the street or get you out of a traffic ticket. The last person you want to meet at Christmas is an angel. The angel's song to the shepherds, at first glance, doesn't seem too bad. doesn't seem very disruptive. Glory to God in the highest, peace to his people on earth. Fair enough. But we zoom out a little bit and look at the vignette as a whole, and the mood turns very somber. The announcement is that in the city of David has been born the Messiah, the Lord. David gets mentioned several times in these first few verses. And so there is a link being created here by Luke between Jesus and his royal progenitor, David. The archetype, David was, of what it means to be a savior. He was the savior in Israel. So that gets clearly articulated to the shepherds and by Luke. And beyond that, there's an interesting link being made between the shepherds uh, and David, not just David and Jesus. David, you'll recall, was also called in from the fields. He was the son who was overlooked and 
forgotten, an afterthought. And he was called in in order to become royalty. The shepherds, societal afterthoughts, isolated out in the fields in the dark of night, are also brought in to the royal throne room of God, the king himself. I'm sure that the shepherds were well aware of what a Messiah is. And no doubt they, like many others in Israel, were waiting, from a, waiting, waiting for a Savior from God, most certainly at the time of Jesus' birth. The glory of Israel at that time of David and the peace of his kingdom were the longing of every Jew. Why is that the case? Because as Luke frames the story, these were the days when Caesar Augustus, Caesar Augustus, Rome, Caesar was issuing decrees. And so even the shepherds would have longed for that savior, for that rescue from their overlords. Augustus, well, you know anything about him, this wasn't good news. He was Julius Caesar's adopted son. He became ruler after a civil war and his defeat of Mark Antony in 31 BC. And then he declared to the world something interesting, that he had brought final peace, the Pax Romana. And by doing that, he spoke of himself as Savior and, interestingly, Son of God. And increasingly, during those days, the worship, the cult of worship of Caesar grew. And the shepherds are called in from the fields by an angelic song that says glory to God in the highest and peace on earth because the city of David has produced the Savior, the Lord of all, not Augustus. Not Quirinius, not Pilate, not Herod the Great, but a baby in a feeding trough. Oh boy. If the angel's message is to be believed, and surely the shepherds realize this, then Caesar has a rival. And it doesn't look like the playing field is exactly level, not at this stage. One king sits on a throne in Rome, and rules much of the known world, and the other lies helpless in a feeding trough. One gets the feeling this might not go very well. Perhaps a baby born to an unwed peasant girl from a despised village like Nazareth might not be able to live up to expectations. The baby has no power. At least, that's the way it seems to us. And I can't help but think some of the shepherds were confused as well. Life, thanks to this, this angelic song, had just become pretty complicated for everybody. The angelic claims about this baby were grandiose, universal, and very confrontational to the powers of the day. The rules are, of this game are such that no one 
gets a free pass. Either you're for Caesar or you're for this Messiah come lately whose only pedigree is a tenuous link to an ancient Israelite king. Which side would we choose? I mean, think about it. We always want to be on the winning side. Imagine you were the shepherd. You know what's being said, that the baby is the Lord. Which side would you choose? And yet here we are, 2,000 years later, rehearsing once again the angelic song to poor shepherds on a lonely night in tiny Palestine. Not the story of Caesar and his money and his military might. That one, a blip on the radar of history. This one, what a story. There must be something about it that compels us, unlike all the other stories that are on offer. And we want one, don't we? truth is we are desperate for a story that brings coherence to our lives. Children love to hear stories because through them they learn to live in the world. <clears throat> we walk through Powell's bookstore, we watch Netflix, we listen to Audible, hoping to find the story <clears throat> that describes us and defines us. We hope for the one that has a beginning, a middle, and a very good ending. The one where as we grow, we become more powerful, successful, and possess more of our own lives. We are all looking for a coherent story that makes sense of the world and makes sense of us. But for the most part, for all of our storytelling, <clears throat> We lack that master story, our world does, that tells us who we are, who God is, and where this world is headed. And at first glance, this story about this baby and these shepherds seems to be an unlikely candidate to be the master story for both the suburban family, the single hipster, the Silicon Valley executive, and the Ukrainian refugee trudging through the snow and mud looking for water. One story for them all. But could it be? I mean, it lacks something, doesn't it? Or at least it sounds like it. It lacks a certain joie de vivre, the power to give meaning to life, in spite of what the angels claimed about. We, it feels like it lacks that story because the story, that power, because the story we tell ourselves, the air we breathe in our culture, is one that's very different than this story. It's one of upward mobility. It's one of the beautiful people. For all our talk of treating everyone fairly and offending no one, we still bow down to the ones who entertain us and have the power and beauty. That's still our world, like it or not. Now you think we've learned by now 
that behind all of those stories of upward mobility and success and what have you, of powerful and beautiful people, you'd think we'd know by now that there's an emptiness there. That that story can't quite make sense of our lives or give us an ending. You'd think we'd learn that this story, the one of angels and shepherds and an infant, is the one that brings coherence to our broken world. It's the one that lodges in our hearts and tells us that we're not merely overlooked shepherds in a field on third shift, but we are welcomed guests in a royal throne room, in the royal throne. St. Peter tells the church in his letter that we are a chosen race called out of the fields into royal chambers and we've been made a royal priesthood. So, just to be clear, if you follow Jesus, your royalty, purple, not the sort that exercises power like Caesar, your royalty that lives like a priest, a priest who stands between God and the world in order to bring the Pax Christos to everyone. It's a powerful story, indeed. But it's a different sort of power than we're used to. It's the power of weakness and sacrifice. And this power and weakness didn't end at Christmas, because about 33 years after this night, this weak baby, now a man, would face all the horror that humanity could muster against him. And God, in human flesh, suffered and died on a cross just so he could risk an eternal love relationship with us. This great and powerful God is so powerful that he's willing to give it up and wallow in our chaos so that we might know what it means to be fully alive. Now it seems to me that a God like that is worthy of our very, very close attention. Not just tonight, but next Thursday and January the 1st and during spring break, and three years from now when you've graduated, and on your wedding day, and when you're close to reading your last. All the way. You know, when this story gets in our bones, we can never say again, well, God doesn't care. There's no hope for me. He's left me. He's abandoned me. There's something better. Next time you hear bad news from your doctor, next time you look at your savings account and receive that unwanted bill in the mail, next time you're tempted to quit on that relationship because you've tried too many times, well, I want you to think about an angelic song. It's a song and story that you need because it includes you and anything you could possibly face in this life. 
singing to yourself over and over again, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Glory to God in the highest. I'm going to pray for us in a moment. Maybe it's been a long time since you've prayed. Maybe you've never prayed. Or maybe you've prayed a lot, but it hasn't meant that much to you. I want to pray, and my great hope is that it's not just my prayer, but as I pray it, it becomes your prayer as well.